Welcome back to the Brookfield Group Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Laudenslager. And on this episode, I sit down with Matt Macbeth, our Chief Innovations Officer. We talk about IoT, innovation, and where he got his start. You can find out more information by going to thebrookfieldgroup.com. Hey, Matt. Hey. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Happy, uh, happy random time of the day to you. Random time of the day. We're going to be very not specific. Yeah. In specific, unspecific. Is that the word? Dispecific. Yeah. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate your time joining me. Let's start out with, give me like a brief explanation of what your role is at the Brookfield Group. Your Technically what? Yeah, the, the technical job title is Chief Innovation Officer. And it doesn't really mean anything. The word innovation is destroyed over the last couple of years. So it's mostly, I, I just collaborate either from our technology partners, our customers, our internal folks, everybody on the team, and how to find business solutions, how to add value, whether it's through a technology, maybe it's a process, maybe it's a piece of software, maybe it's not using a piece of software. So just taking a understanding of how we can bring value to all of our partners, internal, external. And and the, kind of the typical, when you hear a company having an innovation position, it's usually somebody who has a ping pong table and a drone, and we're going to go, as much as we love Legos, we're going to play with Legos, and <laughs> hey, we're innovative. But at the end of the day, you're just, you just have a big marketing budget. So trying to really disrupt the innovation position. And it, it's been working out really well. I've been here for about almost a year and a couple months. And I've probably got to meet a good, maybe a third of our customers, pretty much everybody on the team in the Indianapolis office. And it, it's pretty amazing of the relationships that Brookfield Group has built over the years. And now being able to come back to those same customers, partners, friends, whatever, and say, how can we help you more? Yeah, we always pride ourselves in that relationship. I think that human element was that, I think that was a marketing thing of of another company, but I'm going to steal it anyway. But that (laughs) human element is really important because it does get lost with, as companies get bigger and bigger, having a a human face and that human relationship is really important. What's some of your background before Brookfield? What were you doing? You don't have to go like full life story where you're born, but maybe some tent posts of, of what you were before here. Yeah, I'm business person, half technology person. So I have an electrical engineering degree from Penn State. I've designed all kinds of crazy things. I've had some really fun startup companies, been on a reality show, been around the world, lived in different places, seen amazing things. And and what I think I've come to notice is we try to make things way too complicated in our lives. When, when I think of a, a business scenario, like the key, the point of a business is I think when you boil it down to, the most simple thing a business does is it saves you time. So if you look at any object in a room, like we have a chair, uh, we're sitting on a chair. So we can buy these chairs for $50, but anybody can build their own chair. But is it really worth spending to build a, a chair that looks as nice as these? It would probably take, I don't know, 16 weeks or something to make the plastic and build the wood legs and screw it together so it doesn't fall over. So anybody could build the chair, but... What value is your time worth to buy that chair from someone who's better at building chairs or mass production than you are? So when I think of a business, it's, you know, how do I save you time? How do I bring value to your life? And in return, 
you compensate me either through a barter or through money or through something. And as long as the relationship is valuable for both of us, we continue. But sometimes it's okay for businesses not to continue with customers. That's the best thing is when you have the customers keep coming back, you bring them value and in return, they compensate you. And also through the compensation, they also bring value to your lives. Yeah, there's, what's the term I'm looking for? Thought worker Mm. comes to mind where we've definitely, uh, the society has definitely moved. And and this has probably been for the past like 20 plus years where we've moved out of manufacturing and more into the value of an individual worker and the value of somebody at your company is not necessarily building the chair, but it's the design of the chair. It's orchestrating all of the pieces around the chair that takes a lot of work. Yeah. People don't realize that it's not just the final product. There's a whole slew of other things that have to come into place. And I, before we started, we were talking about aluminum cans because obviously we have to talk about what's happening in the world right yeah. now, COVID-19 and how there's this shortage of aluminum cans. And so that's trickling down to soda manufacturers that's trickling down to breweries that's trickling down to sparkling water manufacturers and anybody else who uses aluminum cans and you can see you can start to see there are a lot more moving pieces into an individual product than people realize yeah because you know there's a big difference between a product and the company right and the value the, the the greater value that you can give into the company beyond the product the better that, again, that relationship between, you know, two companies can be. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at like this aluminum can, they, they have to have offices, they have to have IT infrastructure systems, they have to have supply chains, they have to have transportation, they have to have HR, they need to have accounting. When you look at a can, hey, this thing costs a penny. Why is that? That's a lot for tin can. You also have to have, you know, the ability to melt metal and make it into tin. It's, hey, go ahead and make that can. Yeah. Like you said, making a chair, that may take you three months to yeah. figure out how to find this grade of aluminum, how to mold it, the artwork, how to paint on it, like all yeah. those specialized skills. And so when a company already has all of that, it does cost more. You're not spending yeah. all of your life making a can. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could build a car, but I don't know if I'd want to drive the car I built every day. If it was just <laughs> me in it, that'd be cool. But if it's someone like with my family's in the car, it's like, yeah, let's take that one we bought. Yeah. That's already been tested. Yeah. So you mentioned some startups. I'm going to mention one, Edwin, because mm-hmm. I have uh, personal familiar, familiarity with it. Yeah. Uh, talk about Edwin a little bit. Yeah. So that, that started off. So one before Edwin is where it really started. I had this opportunity. I was selling off an audio company. And this was back when right around you could first start writing your very first iPhone apps. And so I had an opportunity to sell off the, the coolest audio file company in the world that, that I built. And someone else had a better idea of connecting technology to your iPhone. So now it's Internet of Things or Appsessories or whatever the, the buzzword is now, connected sensors and all that kind of thing. So went through, we actually made the very first IP camera connected to your phone. So you have like ring doorbells and Nest, all that kind of stuff. So we had the first one about a year and a half in front of all of them. And it was a pretty intense time bouncing back and forth between China and having a bunch of engineers in India and a bunch of friends in Cupertino helping us on the project. And we were in every retail store and then we went through a pretty big company shakeup and did a company turnaround on that. And that was a pretty 
pretty brutal amount of time to do that. That was working three shifts, seven days a week, all year to pull that off. And, and then finally left that company and it was pretty burnout. And so I started doing some small consulting gigs and making some audio stuff. And, but I had all of this knowledge left over from how to connect stuff to the internet and connect it to a phone and looked at opportunities that weren't as hard as consumer goods. And so I found the world of children's educational toys that didn't have any of this technology at the time. And there's drones and all this kind of really awesome stuff flying around. So had to make something really indestructible. So I ended up you know, putting it inside of a rubber duck. So it's waterproof, indestructible. Rubber ducks are awesome and fun. So I ran that company for a while and I finally exited that um, a little over a year ago. And that's how I met up with Brookfield Group was after exiting the world of PyLab and Edwin the Duck, looking for some software development partners to help me build some new awesome stuff and happened to find an amazing team here to, to do it. Are you more... So you're in both camps, you're in, in hardware and software. Yeah. You have skills in, in both the areas. Yeah. With IoT, the buzzword of the past three years, yeah. I feel like, do you, and a little side jag here, we'll come back to some other things. What are your thoughts on where this IoT industry is going? Are we at a saturation point? Are you looking at stuff and it's redundant? Is nobody innovating? And I have a follow-up question to that as well. But yeah, there's probably, I don't know, 2 billion IoT products in the world right now. And coming from consumer-grade IoT products, so coming from the world of maybe making the first one, um, seeing everything, about every year, yeah, everything's been invented, and then you see some other new application, and you see another application. So, I don't know, there's a famous thing like GE back in 1900 said everything that's patented has already been patented. And I, I think we're going through the same revolution again whether it's uh, energy density through batteries or whether it's through a computing, we need to have a huge uh, leap in computing power. We're not even close to understanding how the human brain actually works yet. We can see some signals of how it works, but we're not really sure what's going on. Just about a year ago, we found another way the brain communicates between cells that we never even realized happened before. So we're pretty far away from making a really bad human brain through electronics. So I, I think there's a, a long way to go with how things work. The One of the amazing things that has come out of the recent, take a look at like the, the voice uh, operated things like Alexa and Siri. Oh, um, you just set off people's devices. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, stop. Yeah. Order eggs. <laughs> one of the things that's awesome has happened in the world of engineering is now that there's a lot of voice interaction. Several years ago, having a degree in linguistics, was pretty cool, but it wasn't extremely useful. Now it's one of the most sought after skills. Now that you, if you're really good at linguistics, how translations work, how the human languages work, whether it's verbal, nonverbal communication or other things, that's a highly valuable skill now that has emerged. So when you think of you know, smart speakers, you wouldn't have thought of before they came out, hey, these audiophile products, these little speakers in our house we play Bluetooth music through, that's awesome. What we really need is people with humanities degrees to make this awesome. So now we've gone full stack from you know, the pendulum going the whole way to awesome technology, amazing audio quality. Now it's human factors and interfaces and how do you actually make these things play well with humans, whether it's you know, the predictive things or just interfaces. And it, you look at, at that at a global scale where... English is already a really hard language of itself for humans to figure out. Mm -hmm. Now you've got to tell a computer to try to figure out, but then, oh, we want to launch in Italy yeah. and Germany and Russia and China 
in Australia. And it's now you've got to have those same skills or those, those same group of people in all those other countries. Yeah. Because now it's not just a English is, is the end all be all it's cultural. Like how does somebody in Italy interact with their device in a different way, or especially like human interface design. Yeah. We see a lot of that coming from East Asian companies or Indian companies where they they build a human interface that comes over to the States and everybody goes, I don't, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. I don't understand the cultural implication of this. One example I think would be like Japanese toilets, mm-hmm. how there's, that's a cultural norm where they have all of these buttons and their Wi-Fi and they've got lights and sounds and everything. And you bring that over to us and we're like, I'm, that doesn't make any sense to us. Yeah. Like, we put the second flusher on there. Right. We were confused. <laughs> yeah. It's where there's two buttons now. What's happening? <laughs> Yeah, I I think like in the linguistic side, you think of a smart speaker that speaks English. So which English does it speak? Right. Then we're going to, okay, let's translate it. There's a big market in the United States for Spanish speaking products. Which Spanish? So most of the linguistics research in the AI AI field is done with Spain Spanish, not Latino Spanish. So it's a pretty big deal. It's a a couple billion dollars to make a translation engine to run inside of there. Each word in a chat a voice type feature has 270 different variables for each word. You know, what word is before it, words, words after it, what's the context, what's the location. So it's really hard to make a computer talk. Yeah. And understand. Yeah. And then to make it speak like English is Germanish in sentence structure, but go from a Western language to an Eastern language, translate an English to a Mandarin is really difficult to do on a flow chart. Yeah. Do you think that... We're doubling down too much on voice interaction and we're leaving other sensory interaction behind because there is a, obviously there's a certain amount of the population who voice interaction doesn't work. Yeah. The same with people who have different disabilities where voice interaction is critical, but physical touch or or body movement or motion control Mm -hmm. is it, is where are we glassy eyed? rose-colored glasses to the smart speaker, the device that sits in the corner and can do everything. Yeah, there's. I, I think touch-free applications are really going to be coming on strong. I think they were gaining a lot of popularity last year just with the food manufacturing plants. Open the door versus actually touching the door to open it. You're still going to transfer some kind of, you spend all that time washing your hands. So I, I think there's needs to be more of a combination from vertical silos of just voice recognition to putting a camera on it. So reading emotions from your, your body language or your face or your, instead of just a straight voice to text, what is the context of the text? Are you happy when you say it? Are you sad when you say it? Are you angry? So once you start putting these multiple dimensions of translations and sensors on it, if you're really doing a speech to text out, if you were able to measure um, heart rate at the same time, you can measure if someone's getting agitated. So maybe when you say something calmly versus being agitated. It's like when you text somebody, like you text somebody like what you thought was innocent and they get upset from it because they read it differently. So h- how do we map emotions on top of just the straight words? With all of these devices, small devices, you know, being connected to the network, being connected to a computer or being a computer themselves, what are your thoughts on the security of IoT and where we need to go? 
So it's really tough transporting packets over a public network. There's always going to be the possibility of something not going perfectly. And then there's also the possibility of something getting intercepted or changed or translated. So there's definitely a level of security on top of things. And then when you take just like regular network traffic and it's running through a server, running through routers and everything, it's it's this one-to-one relationship. But if you then take it to another dimension and say, I'm going to store this data on a blockchain system. So you'll... In one way, it's the information's more public, but in the other way, it's also harder to change. Or do you really want to save some data to a SQL database and hide it somewhere that no one finds it? But if someone does find it, they can you know hack your Twitter account. Versus do you want to make everything so public that you can't change it, but everybody sees it? So there's a really interesting set of options coming up just between just normal, what are your, you know, what's your Netflix watching habits to recommend the next show for you versus what's your... Uh, you know, what's your body temperature today and what's your emotional content when you walk into a retail store? There's, well, there's a lot of good that can happen and a lot of bad that can happen. And technology is a tool. It's not a good or a bad. And we're still learning. Yeah. All, yeah all Definitely. Because I don't think we would get to the point where we're scanning somebody's face to figure out an emotion if we didn't yeah. innovate super quickly. Yeah. And not look at what's breaking or what could be a security risk. Yeah. But then also then you have to slide backwards, two yeah. steps forward, one step back of going, oh, now we need to think about where this information is yeah. going. Who's seeing this information? Is not actually public? That kind of thing. Yeah. When you think of like the ethics of artificial intelligence, it's there's some crazy stuff. So, you know, the only way artificial intelligence works is with prejudices and profiles. Like without that, it doesn't work. And I think it's pretty safe to say prejudice and profiles are probably not always a good thing, but sometimes they are. But it gets to the ethics of, okay, who, who gets to make the decision of how this voice engine works and who gets to pick the, the results? So you think of like the, it used to be the crazy scenario of two autonomous cars driving to an intersection. Who gets to keep going and who gets to either get crashed or drive into the ditch? Does it pop up a push notification? Enter 75 cents to continue. No, I don't know if I like this world they're describing. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's weird. I remember growing up, there was a department store that you used to have to put a, a coin in to use the restroom stalls. And the one actually had it on the inside. You had to pay to get back out. Wow. And I always thought that was fascinating just as a young person. Huh. So like you can get in your monthly subscription, but to get out of it, you have to pay. Is that the psychology, the psychological model we want on it? Or do we want to have to pay to get into it? Yeah. Or do they just happen to put the doors on backwards? I I think there's an interesting point about subscription and getting, paying somebody to get out because a lot of times it's so easy just to subscribe to something. It is literally, you can go in and get a blue apron subscription in seconds. And all of a sudden you've got a $50 box of food coming to you every single week. But to figure out how to cancel that subscription, you could almost take that as pain with your time. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about is your time worth something that you're going to pay somebody else yeah. to do? And so they're actually charging us with time, it seems like, mm-hmm. where you go up and try to cancel your cable subscription or change your cable subscription. And they say, here's our, our customer retention program and we're going to give you three months. And so, okay, yo, I'm going to go ahead and 
sign up for three more months. And then after three months you go back, they go, we're going to give you a free HBO subscription. And then you go, okay. So not but all that time you've basically paid to the company yeah. almost. It's not as, it's as, I don't know if it's a, as extreme as paying 75 cents to get out of a bathroom stall, yeah. but it was back then. So it was probably, <laughs> probably a penny. Yeah. When you think of that in Las Vegas at the CES show this year, we went to everything was moving towards monthly subscriptions and I don't know. It, it, you know. Should there be a milk subscription at the grocery store? Hey, $2 a month, you get all the skin milk you want. Or do you have an egg subscription? Because you can have razor subscriptions now and you can have you know, all these other subscriptions. I'm not sure. Like, it, It's just kind of weird. Averaging your cost, everything makes it easier to budget, but it also makes it easy to forget about you lose control of your finances also yeah. sometimes. Do you think from a company standpoint, the reason for going to subscriptions is because the cost of final product has been, is now so low that people can't justify paying a luxury tax yeah. on fancy milk, yeah. but they'd rather pay a subscription for fancy milk because it's fancy milk, even though that milk not be, may be exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. Cause I remember that used to be like the cheese of the month club and everything. I'm like, that's crazy, but it's funny. But from a business side, is it more efficient to have the pay the same bill? It's nine ninety nine a month from your customer versus this month it's nine eighty seven. Next month it's ten dollars and two cents. So you really you're tripping over pennies. So in some ways, it makes it much more convenient from accounting standpoints. You have the same budget of whatever your whatever your subscription is, and you already know what it is. So you can put it in your forecast for the next six quarters. And there's a lot of places that will take subscriptions. And say, if you pay for the six months, it's 25% off. Yeah. Or you pay for 12 months and it's 33% off or something like that. Because they, they can guarantee they have that revenue for 12 months. Mm-hmm. And they're not, like you said, tripping over pennies every yeah. single month and going, oh, we've lost. We're down, you know, 10 subscriptions or, yeah. you know, but we're up four subscriptions. And that, that anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And some of the great things about it, though, is if we know we have $1,000 a month coming in for the next 18 months. We, we know how much, how many people to hire. We don't, we don't get to the end of month three as oh We can't pay Sally today. You know, sorry. Like we, it's easier to forecast how to, how to keep people employed. Do you think some of that subscription in the end product has come from the startup world where it's a lot of these small uh, companies who hire on contractors or hire on like part-time people and you have this workforce that's going from startup to startup almost in a subscription labor model. Part of the subscription thing, it makes it really easy for investors to compare companies that they want to invest in. If you have a monthly subscription, then you have monthly active users, daily active users. You have your different, different metrics. You have VC math equations that you use. What's your viral you know, loop, what's your, what are your different costs? So if you're needing to bring in 15 to $20 million for a small series, a, if you have these metrics, it makes it easier to raise money. It makes it easier to compare companies like, Hey, we're on track of whatever the last one is. So we think we can grow at this rate. So it makes it a whole lot easier to plan if everybody uses the same, the same units of measure. Changing gears a little bit. You're head of our innovation team. Is that what we call it now, innovation team? Yes. What, obviously, a lot of people are working from home. 
and our entire development team has almost gone exclusively working from home. What are some challenges that you guys have faced as managing a team and what are some wins? What are some things that you guys have actually improved upon? I think one of the one of the opportunities, I have a friend who has a saying, it says opportunities everywhere. And we're, we're definitely seeing it right now on our software team. But I would say on average, more software developers are introverted versus extroverted. And giving them the, op- the opportunity to optimize their work experience, whether it's exactly 9 to 5 or maybe it's 8.30 to 4 or maybe it's work sometime on Saturdays or whatever it is, it, it helps it helps them become more efficient in their thought processes. Like some people just have a natural flow, like 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. I'm just really creative or sometime in the afternoons, like right after lunch, I'm just, I just have no productivity. So finding what's your groove is definitely helping on a lot. And it's also a growth thing. A lot of times when you work from an office, you don't have the flexibility to not take lunch at noon. Letting humans be more human than computer has been a huge advantage right now for us. Yeah, that's really a good cultural shift. I think a lot of companies are, are seeing that. And you're also seeing some of that backlash from other companies who are people are working from home who are tied to a yeah. a computer from nine to five and they're working from home and that doesn't work with their schedule. Yeah. But like you said, letting people be more human yeah. is, is a huge one. Yeah, and, definitely. And, and like the cream rises, the thing like the people who are really efficient are really just love doing what they're doing. They're way more efficient. And people who are just phoning in before, it's, it starts to become more visible. Yeah, definitely. So the big project you guys are working on is First Degree. Yeah, it's one of our, it's one of the applications. We have a, the suite called First Class Software. And it's one of these things, like I said, disrupting innovation teams. We never really intended to go down this route for software, working on some larger B2B software for some more industrial applications. Our other hundreds of clients needed stuff too. And a lot of them needed some way to either get their employees to work from home more remotely. So how do you measure their productivity? How do you build a system? And then when you get back to work, how do you, some places require temperature scans, a lot of food processing plants they need. You have to comply with FDA legislation and some other there's legislations for other places so they just needed some way to keep track of people and one of the first ones is the product we came up called first degree and the one thing we learned from that is most companies have this uh, sheet of paper in the front door and you walk in you write your name on say hey i'm bob from delta services i'm here for my three o'clock meeting with, with jim and we actually found out there's actually a real application for that piece of paper out front and I never knew what existed. So a lot of the operations and facility managers, they use that if there's an emergency, say there's a fire, they run up and grab that piece of paper and say, these three you know, visitors are in the office today. We got to find them to make sure they get out. And I never realized there was a real purpose for that. So when we digitized that and made it more of a, a cloud service, you could have an iPad at sign in. You could have an iPad in the break room everywhere it was. But also everybody would have the information on their phone. So if there was a fire and say that piece of paper got lost, maybe got windy, whatever, you'd have a real-time access. You could, if someone signs in, signs out, you get notified. Um, so we build a, basically build a customer experience automation system based off that little sign-in piece of paper at the front door. And first degree is just one piece yeah. of that. 
And then you've, what, what did it start out with? It didn't start yeah. out with the sign in, sign out. Yeah, it's it, something different. Yeah. So the, the one, the one application is since we're in this world of pandemics and global crisis, this is my I don't know, fifth or sixth global pandemic that's ended the world in my professional career. It, it came out that they wanted to measure people's body temperatures going in and out of offices. So the thought was like, let's make an automated temperature scanning system. So let's put a thermal imaging camera at the front door when everybody walks in the office, it takes your temperature, and you're good to go. But unfortunately, this was in March when it's still pretty cold out. So it was still 30, 40 degrees in the parking lot. So you get out of your car, you stand in line with 15 other people in front of you, walk to the front door, your forehead temperature measures 70, which is not really good for your health. So we found out that you just couldn't do thermal imaging scanners with people standing in the parking lot. So then we, we changed to different types of temperature monitoring systems. Now, what we found out is what we, what they really wanted, they didn't really want a temperature-taking system. There's companies that make really good thermometers, whether they're ear thermometers, nose thermometers, and they're um, FDA-regulated medical devices. What they really need is replace the piece of paper that gets lost or has inaccurate temperature readings. So we build a system to log people when they're coming in, record their temperature. If for some reason they had uh, their temperatures out of range, we automatically notify their HR people to go through the next phase. Well, some, some companies had policies. If your temperature's in a certain range, you had to go home for the day. So we would automate that with the HR process to automate a, a sick day, I think it was. So it was just automating business processes through people getting checked in at the front door. I think you see a lot of companies realizing that there's a lot of holes in their processes Mm -hmm. and not to necessarily pick on the Midwest and compare it to, say, a larger East Coast city where you have maybe you have a 40 story building Mm -hmm. and the security on getting into that said building is can be wild. You can get to the lobby. But you've got to badge in, you've got to badge out, there's security everywhere, you can't go into certain elevators, you have to talk to a receptionist and have you know ID, compared to some companies where you could just walk in mm-hmm. and not have any of those barriers to entry. And companies are realizing if we don't have those barriers to entry, now we could be have somebody who is sick come into the building without us knowing. Yeah. And now we're liable and also putting all of our other employees at yeah. risk. Yeah. And I think even on top of that, you know, that's a pretty low percentage of what happens. What we really did see early on when people started working from home was people who are really good at scammers. They would put on a brown hat and then walk into office carrying a box and walk out carrying four boxes. Yeah. So a lot of package delivery scams came up really fast. And if you had to sign in as the, Fe- the FedEx delivery driver, you know, if you walked in with a FedEx hat and didn't sign the thing, it's, hey, you're kind of, something's fishy here. So it, it was really picked up more on the scamming side than on the, people knew already if you're sick, you don't go to work. So it wasn't like, hey, going to work sick just happened in you know, February this year. It's always been around if you're coughing, you stay home, and then you know, there's always that one jerk that still comes to work sick anyways. What's the, not to get too much into what your future plans are for first degree, but what are some uh, pie in the sky ideas that you guys are having? So one thing, going back to the opportunities everywhere, we knew that things are going to be more touch-free. There's going to be a lot more emphasis on data security, cyber security, healthcare type issues in the workplace. 
we use the last several months as an opportunity to get ahead of where our customers are going to be. So we really picked up on a lot of data analytics projects, um, a lot of voice recognition, facial recognition, emotion detections. And then from there, you need to have make sure that the databases are stronger and backed up better, which we already do. And from there, what's going to happen in a world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and that sort of thing. So we really upped our game on all of those technologies and we have working apps already and all of that. So if any of our customers say we need a a HIPAA compliant solution to do this, we already have it. I think in the last couple of weeks, I think 12 of us passed HIPAA certification regulations, whatever that is. Now we have our software developers and more of our management team are HIPAA compliant and are more cognizant of that. We're ready to go with whatever our customers need, but that's kind of part of my role is finding out what our customers do, what's their business case, and get out ahead of it a little bit so we're ready for them. Apart from what you guys are working on internally, final question, big question. What are you most excited for this later half of the year in the technology and innovation world? What do you what have, did you see maybe in January at CES that you were most excited about? crazy when I look back to CES the only thing I saw at CES this year excited me was a was like basically an iPad outside of all the restroom stalls and it would count people going in and out and if the restroom was overloaded it would aim you to the next closest one so it gets back to is IOT oversaturated or not I, I think there's still a lot of really awesome applications that are coming out the technology we have um the processing power we have, we're pretty well plateaued there. So we need a huge disruption in processing power and energy storage to really go to the next step. So right now, I think we're swinging back to the more human side. How do we actually help humans versus making really fast things? Matt, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Um, and thank you for listening. Awesome. Thanks Goodbye. for having me. Goodbye. See you later. We're waving to nobody. Bye. Ha, <laughs> ha,